Hello and welcome to the first podcast from Springfield Agri. I'm Mark Shaler. I've been doing sustainability for 30 years. I've worked with some of the biggest and some of the smallest companies around from Google, Amazon, Samsung, Coca-Cola, down to some really great smaller companies like Proper Corn, Hyatt Denim. I've been very lucky working with some great businesses over the years. And I measure everything I do in money and in carbon. And I've saved my clients over $150 million per year. And I've saved them hundreds of thousands of tons of carbon just through doing things better and doing better things. I'm going to be your host for a series of podcasts on regenerative agriculture. The first of these is with Finian Makepeace. Finian is 50% of the Kiss the Ground team. The groundbreaking, no pun intended, film around regenerative agriculture in the USA. It's incredible. And Finian is an amazing guy. He's done loads in his life, a lot of music, a lot of producing, and then he's found his cause, he's found his why, and it's evident that he's absolutely in his zone. So settle down and enjoy the podcast. Finian Makepeace, it's an absolute joy to be talking to you. It's your lunchtime, it's my evening, late evening. It's winter. Whereabouts in America are you? I'm in Los Angeles. Oh. So it's not too shabby here weather-wise. I was there last year for Summit. I came over for Summit, which I really, really loved. I was there. Maybe we saw each other. Well, there's a lot of people at Summit, but it was amazing. I really, really enjoyed it. So welcome. And you're a lot warmer there than we are here. That's for certain. Finian, most people are going to know you from one of two things, I suspect, from either Kiss the Ground, which we're going to come to, or America's Got Talent. I'm not certain which one they're going to know you from and possibly both. And we will talk about drumming at some point. But Finian, tell me about yourself. I am an activist, grew up in Ithaca, New York, which is upstate New York, about four hours from New York City. Uh, it's countryside. I was homeschooled until I was in eighth grade, went to some homeschool programs with other kids a few few years, but mostly meant uh, a lot of time in the woods, a lot of time with my brothers uh, outside. So I had a lot of exploring time, got to see things happen. Even my early school days with other groups of homeschool kids was doing a lot of observational things. So really got a slower pace, I would say, of education, uh, not just regurgitation of uh, what was being taught to me, but really based on inquiry. My parents' homeschooling was pretty lax. It was really about like, what do you want to know about? And luckily, my parents were pretty well educated and helped us in terms of, okay, if you want to learn about this, let's talk about it for several hours. And sometimes that was dangerous because you ask a question and and then you get two hours of lecture or ideating on it. And uh, it was wonderful in a lot of ways because it set me up to be my own learner and to be someone who is questing for knowledge and wisdom versus someone who is just waiting for others to tell me. So yeah, I uh, grew up there and uh, did band stuff for most of my teens and 20s and moved out to California in pursuit of music, did a big music career for a while, and then got the soil bug. I had a moment that changed my life forever, which was twofold. First was a priming moment that kind of set me up for hearing this, which, like I said in the beginning, I've been an activist uh, socially, environmentally for my whole life, and I was feeling pretty 
much like we're headed off the cliff and there's not actually much we can do except for slow down a bit, a little less harm, maybe apathetic uh, was what it was. Basically I had a dream that I was an old man and I was living in this refugee camp in Brazil and global climate change had wrecked havoc on the world. Billions of people dead, billions more misplaced in this refugee camp. I'm like 90 years old and I have a granddaughter. She wakes me up in the middle of the night. She sneaks me out of the, out of the refugee camp and we walk all night. And as the dawn approaches, we come over the crest of this hill and out in front of us is this city that's just destroyed and ruined. And she just looks up at me and she has tears streaming down her face. And she's just like, why didn't you do anything to stop this from happening? And it was this really profound moment for me because it made me look at the future of my life in one moment of can I be or will I be that old man because of where we're headed. And I woke up from that dream profoundly moved in that I knew I had to not be that old man. And so I didn't know what it was going to be or what it was going to be that I would involve my work in, but I knew I had to take a bigger step than I'd ever taken before in terms of activism, in terms of my contribution to the future. And about eight months later, the other profound moment was hearing a lecture from Graham State. My friend Ryland had been in, in New Zealand and you know, heard a panel of scientists talking about, can human beings sustain themselves on planet Earth? And the first five people said, no, at this trajectory, we're not going to. Like we're, we're, we're heading off of this massive cliff. And the last guy said, yes, and we've all forgotten about the potential of soil and soil regeneration. So Ryland convinced this guy to, who's the other co-founder, Kiss the Ground, convinced this guy to come to LA and speak to us. And four hour lecture later, I was just completely moved because I saw the profound opportunity that is soil regeneration that I had never known about. And I was basically like, if I didn't know about this, as someone who's kept up to date, thought I was very educated on the subject around environmental catastrophes and everything. And I had zero idea about this huge potential. Probably most people don't know as well. So it was an immediate went back home with Ryland to his house and we said, Hey, if this is true, we literally have to dedicate our lives to helping this. I didn't know it was going to go to this extent, but we, we made that commitment, shook hands and, and off it went a year later, kiss the ground was born. So that's a little about me, a little bit about my history. And I've always been a passionate person. I've always been activist oriented, believing that we can shift the world. And this, this just took it to a next level of like, wait, we actually can turn the tide. We can turn the ship around. It's possible. Humans have to do it. Yeah. And we can. And the interesting thing is you're right. People don't know about soil. People don't know what's underneath our feet. And I always like to ask the same three questions when I talk to someone, not anyone in the street, someone like this, about your childhood. And you kind of answered some of these really. I'm really interested in what your childhood, what it tasted like, what it smelt like, and what it sounded like. Oh, wow. You're taking me right to my main childhood home. I moved to when I was four, I believe, uh, or three, pardon me, right before my brother was born. It's out in the country. It's upstate New York. So the smells are fall. You get all of those leaves. Spring, you get the lush cut grass, spring and summer. The compost at my mom's garden, using the compost to spread on the garden. The woods, the smell of the woods just popped really hard in my, in my head. And that's that like leafy, earthy, 
rich smell. It's incredible. I spent so much time in the woods. I really wish that for so many kids of just being able to be in the woods. So that's the smell, the taste, what's coming to me right now. Uh, some old, you know, hippie granola, some tastes coming. My dad's pesto pasta, other tastes, uh, crab apples, crab apples. Hmm. Those are some, those are some tastes that come to mind. Brilliant. I love that. We home educated as well. Um, we home educated. We've got four kids and a granddaughter. Weirdly, as you were talking about that, I could just feel my granddaughter looking at me. And then the last one was sound. What did your childhood sound like? Lots of yelling. <laughs> I had four brothers. Lots of uh, outdoor noise. So birds and the silence and wind of outside. Yeah, those are the two things that come to mind. There's, you know, that, you know, that sound, I don't know if you can put it in your head, but like when you're laying in the grass in the summer and like, there's the grasshoppers, whatever they're called, the make crickets making the noises, but like that summer cricket sound and it's in the hot. Yeah. So that's coming to mind. But you can hear the heat. Exactly. That's when it's like a feeling you're hearing. Yeah. Yeah. And you can almost feel the, the soil cracking as it dries, mm. knowing that it'll be rained on again and it'll be fine. And, and you can sit there or lay there. And you can hold that moment. It's nearly silence, but it isn't silence. Right, exactly. And there's, there's wind, there's a crow once in a while, you know, it's just, but it's like, you're hearing the summer warmth and heat and you're feeling it at the same time. It's, yeah. Do you think kids still feel and hear and taste those things anymore? I wish it more. It's interesting. Sometimes what astonishes me is that I'm, such an advocate for soil and regenerative agriculture but yet it's like my daughter who reminds me to like we're just laying on the grass looking up at the sky and i'm like checking my phone doing emails ah, while i'm like outdoors with my daughter and it's just really sometimes it's sad to realize that how caught up in the doing world we are and so i have lucky to be in la and have an actual backyard and so, yeah, that, those have been some of my moments where my daughter's either in the garden doing something or she's laying in the grass, just like, let's look up at the sky. It's just like, oh, thank goodness. Thank you for being that reminder. I should be the one reminding you, but yeah. Yeah, but we get the children we deserve. You know, we get the children we needed. That's always the way. So Kiss the Ground, give us a 101 on Kiss the Ground. What is it about? Why does it matter? Why should anybody care? Well, the name, I'll start with that. As you said, why does Kiss the Ground Matter? I mean, humans have, especially in the, in the last several thousand years, really taken ourselves out of the connection with nature, the reverence, the humble interconnectedness with, you know, the siblings of our land, really. Like so many indigenous cultures still are and had in the past having this stewardship and reciprocity mindset. And so much of the conquering mechanical mind over the last thousands of years has separated us from this even even you know monotheism of looking up at the, at the heavens so to speak of like forgetting the mother earth so kiss the ground for me is a reminder of of really the awe that we can and and i think deserve to have of the soil it's not just the science it's just the bigness of it like we don't have to pretend anything like ultra weird and spiritual. It's just, it's freaking amazing. Like let's have some awe and wonder and appreciation and reverence for this substance. That's the only reason we humans even get to live on the planet in the first place. So 
there's just so much there. There's so many worlds. And I think the big return for humanity is going to be that we can be stewards of regeneration. And it comes starting with kissing the ground, really. I get that. Kiss the ground. The organization, um, we, as I mentioned in the kind of the opening here, is that we had the moment of like, if we didn't know about this, probably a lot of people don't. How do we help? You know, I was in music and other co-founder was in restaurant owner and both of us being activists in our own right. But it was like, we're not the farmers, we're not the scientists, but we can be the champion that helps those people get noticed, that helps these ideas land in the world. We can be that second person, if you will, who's making it so that something's more available to the rest of the world. And that was the original intent of Kiss the Ground is how do we help make this moment more available that we had, make it more available to the rest of the world. And that was the foundation where Kiss the Ground started. Are you surprised by the impact that the film has had? Yes and no. Yes, in that like you tend to become a skeptic after eight years of shouting from the rooftops, especially to you know people who are in your circles of like, yes, the guy who talks about soil stuff. So that part of yes, because you kind of become calloused and you don't expect much. But no, in that it's still the same idea that hit me and shifted my whole life. It's such a powerful idea that if I had not heard about it and I had seen this documentary, I would be sharing it with everybody. You know, I'd be, I'd be one of those people that we're hearing from of being like, oh my God, you just changed my life and I'm going to share this with everyone. So in that way, I'm not surprised when I look at it of like, of course, it's because this is an idea that so many indigenous cultures have had and have been like shouting also, but that the world is ready to awaken to. I mean, that's part of it is the readiness. And we, we sometimes kid at ourselves of like, this was supposed to be done, Mark, in, in two years. And we started this project seven years ago. And to have it finally come now, the timing, it was right. I'm not all about like divine weird stuff, but it was perfect timing. Yeah, but a bit of divine weird stuff's pretty cool as well. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting. I'm just finishing a really lovely book called The Overstory, which is about the power of trees and how they communicate through the air, but mostly how they communicate through the soil, how the word medium that we use for soil, it means so much more than just something to grow in. And we'll talk about the programs that you do in a minute. But it, it's also the way that the mycelia and the way that the soil structure works allows a whole range of growing things to communicate with one another. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, Suzanne Samard, her work, I'm sure you're familiar, is just, yeah. for anyone out there, just go, go YouTube Suzanne Samard. It's just so amazing. And one of my favorite moments with my students, I teach a bunch of soil advocates around the world. And uh, she was doing her final presentation and she was talking about Avatar. And she's like, yeah, kind of like Avatar. After her presentation, I was giving her notes and I was like, did you know that James Cameron was inspired by Suzanne Samard and Paul Stamets to make that network from mycorrhizal fungi? Like that was him being inspired by these people who are finding out these most remarkable things that are happening under our feet. And like we saw it in neon blue in the avatar, but that's really happening in undisturbed forests and undisturbed prairie lands or regenerated forests and regenerated prairie lands. That's literally happening. Literally, we have stuff sending signals, supplying food, nutrients, support, all of this stuff. It's just incredible. 
And the fact that the film that was based on the science was then given as a reference to explain the science is really fascinating. It's this cycle within cycles. Incredible. So tell me, because the film's amazing and you've got some great people, Woody Harlson's um, narrating it. You've got Jason Mraz in there and you've got loads of incredible experts because not everyone who listens to this will have watched the film. If you were to summarize, what are the key benefits in terms of sustainability when we look at protecting the soil, when we look at, I'm going to call it repairing the soil. Regenerative agriculture has got a weird kind of tang about it at the moment and and there's some indigenous challenges to the words which i think are valid and and interesting so if we look at kind of like renewing the soil what are the benefits of that yeah and i think i'd love to get into it in in terms of those tangles i think those are just uh fair uh reactions uh well placed well timed of like hey let's check into what this means and and really making sure this is represented as it is as it has been and unfortunately our film gets the ground that's one of our hardest things to deal with is the the representation side as we made a film that was mostly around US farming centric we missed a lot of that representation inside the film and and the education cut is is making some amends to that but there's still so much more to do inside of the meaning of the word but i personally think regeneration we have to we have to make sure it's working culturally with everyone but regeneration to me is the most perfect word because there's nothing that means regeneration quite as well as regeneration does. The health of something being able to be actualized to its full capacity from a damaged state, regeneration repair isn't even quite the same word because repair is usually more mechanical. It doesn't take into account what's possible exponentially derived from pairing off, et cetera, et cetera. So if everyone can close their eyes, because this is a podcast, you take your finger and pretend you're going downwards. Take your finger about middle point in front of your eye. Now, now go down to the right with your finger. That's 10,000 years in most cultures, you know, even indigenous cultures, most indigenous cultures or conquered cultures or what have you, 10,000 years we've been degrading most land across the world. There's many asides from that, many cultures who've been sustaining or regenerating. But most cultures, as their populations increase, have degraded their land's carrying capacity, period. That's just kind of generally most cultures as their population grows, they use up as they're farming, producing their needs, their land is getting degraded. So that's 10,000 years of degradation. We are now, Mark, way down here. We have to recognize where we are. 75% of land on earth is degraded, considered degraded state. We're losing 20 or 30 million acres, nearly the size of England every year to degraded farmland not being usable even with propping it up with chemicals. So here we are down here. Sustaining this broken state degraded land doesn't make sense. If you take where you went to with your down arrow, and now if you go on a straight line to the right, that's what sustaining is. It literally means able to be used without being completely used up or destroyed. That's the definition of sustainable. Sustaining where we are now is literally crazy if we think about everything that the ramifications of that. Regeneration or repair, whatever you want to call it right now, means that we're regenerating what has been degenerated, bringing back, not just repairing, but bringing back into a functional state that has positive feedback loops. So that's going back up. We argue, now that you've gone back up with your regeneration curve, now you can sustain. 
So once we've come back to the Garden of Eden that once was, we can sustain, and that would make sense. But we're so far, so far from that, that humanity has this opportunity. And we're so far degraded in in nearly every continent on the globe that humans are the ones who have to step in. We're on this thing called perpetual decline right now. In most desertified or brittle environments, even if you let it rest in conservation, it's on its own decline indefinitely right now because of how far we've degraded it. So humans are really the only animal. You're not going to get a bunch of crows going in and being like, oh, we're going to, let's plan how we're going to repair this desert and have it work again. We did the damage and we're kind of the only animal that can actually work quickly to help repair it. So that's kind of that call to action across the world of these heavily degraded desertified areas. We all can help and steward them back. And then allowing nature to come in and all of us to be a part of this regeneration. Um, I mean, that's very, very vivid and very striking. Thank you. And the scary thing is, we didn't really notice. I remember watching Carbonation all those years, a decade ago, and watching this Texan wind farmer, brilliant, brilliant guy. And he's talking about the desertification of the soil and the wind was damaging the soil. And I'm looking at it thinking, no, no, the reason the soil's falling apart is because it's not growing anything of any value. It's been stripped by this monoculture, this way of farming, this removal of fields. And I wonder how did the economics of that ever make sense? How short-sighted were they? How do we fix the economic model that allows us to regenerate the soil effectively? How do we, the economic model, the good news is the economic model is, is valid. The thing we're up against is in most cases, in many cases, the dominant parties have been the conquering parties. And this is where indigenous wisdom becomes a critical, indigenous wisdom, I call it indigenous place-based wisdom, becomes a critical pillar for the success of the regenerative agriculture, healthy soil movement, because conquering groups have most often come out on top. And then they're the ones who are dictating how things are happening. This has happened for thousands and thousands of years. But if you take more recently, Australia is a really good example of a naturally semi-brittle environment, meaning it doesn't rain a bunch throughout the year. Half the year or more is highly dry, right? Atmospheric dry. When you have a group of people come in, English people mostly coming in and saying, we're now going to graze how we graze in England. We're going to plow how we plow in England. We're going to do all these things. And you say, wait a minute, England, I've lived there for three months. That place is amazing, but it's also drizzly and moist a lot of the year. Very wet, yeah. So the forgiveness on farming practices in England is extremely high. High forgiveness, high rates of regeneration when you disturb the system. Take those same practices, move them to Australia, and you can read a book called Call of the Reed Warblers, one of my favorite books in regenerative agriculture. I encourage everyone to read it. There's accounts of ranchers there in under five years watching the gullification, desertification of their land just by bringing their animals onto it and doing overgrazing, not planned grazing, not rotational grazing, regular old grazing that they do in, in England. Here, we made a fence, go eat the grass. And the rate, the pace at which those lands degrade and turn into major 10 feet deep gullies and runoff and erosion like you couldn't imagine, accounts, you know, written accounts of this. That's when you have a, a force coming in saying, this is how you do it. This is how you farm. 
and they're farming completely out of context with that environment. The people of Australia, the native people of that continent, worked to manage that land. So it was actually vast, you know, moist fields uh, that were able to have game and other things that they could farm. So it's, it's really interesting when you take seriously how important it is for us to say the regenerative agriculture movement is place-based indigenous wisdom, holistic planning or thinking so that we can adapt to where we are right now in time, in reality, from suburban sprawl to highways, you know, context has to be real. Mm-hmm. And then science and technology, like those three areas are crucial, in my opinion, to make this movement successful. I'll get to your economic point in a second, but when we look at place-based understanding and that most deserts, nearly every desert across the world has been caused by humans, we start to realize that it's so often the case where a society wasn't able to figure out how to regenerate in time. So those unforgiving places, when someone who's never farmed there comes in and takes over that area, their tendency is going to be use it, abuse it, leave it, and they, they're passing on practices that they've never been successful at only in their home territory or what have you. So, so many things there. I want to jump back to your economic point. The good news here is that this is good for farmers, small scale, large scale, conventional, organic, whoever it is, moving towards regeneration. One of the top things that happens when you do that is you reduce your input costs. So when we look at the cost of what most farmers are dealing with day in and day out, the 4% in the US, 4% increase of uh, debt that farmers are going into every year just by being in business is heavily accounted to input costs. So when we look at transitioning and having your soil become healthy again, we're looking at major reductions in how much inputs you need. That's fertilizer, pesticides, et cetera. When you're able to do that, and in many accounts, you're saving, let's say, a 3,000 acre farm, you're saving $200,000 input cost in your second year. That's a huge benefit to that farmer. So that's where we're saying, hey, this has to be economically viable. And the good news is it is because when you regenerate land, you can increase carrying capacity, you can increase fertility, reduce input costs, and all of a sudden there's an economic argument that actually works. So that's why we've paired with farmer trainer programs that actually help farmers do this economically, not just environmentally. And those economics, I mean, they stack up even more strongly when we helicopter out a little bit and we look at the economics of managing floodplains, the economics of managing farm runoff, pesticide and fertilizer runoff into the oceans, which is the single biggest cause of pollution in the oceans, way, way above any ocean debris. And then, of course, the link to climate change and climate change is the single biggest challenge to the oceans, period. And we look at the benefits that we can get from an enhanced soil structure in terms of mitigating and reducing climate change. As soon as we expand the definition of the economic unit of the farm, yeah, everything stacks up. What about yield? How does yield stack up? Well, one point I will get to yield. One point I want to make before that is I make this comparison so people can really visualize it. And it's US based, so pardon me, but anywhere you guys have had flooding, but we had a huge flood in Houston a couple of years back. And people looked at the city of Houston. They said the whole thing's paved, too much pavement creates it so there's no absorptive surfaces. We get a bunch of flooding, right? That makes sense. But then you go out to the ranches, not the not even the farms, the ranches in Texas. And Dr. Alan Williams tested over 300 plus farms. His average tests for a ranch, a half an inch of water infiltrating in how long? How, do you, how long do you think it takes average half an inch of water to infiltrate? 
I, I wouldn't have said very long at all, to be honest. I'd have said half an inch of water. That's a centimeter and a quarter. I'd have said about an hour. Perfect. So that's a long, long time. That's not how nature evolved because at an hour, you're going to deal with massive evaporation, very little infiltration in terms of depth. And then thirdly, how much runoff are you dealing with? Any slight incline or decline, yeah. the runoff is insane. So if you think about this for a second, there would be zero soil in the world if the runoff and erosion rates are what they are today. In the US, we lose four tons of topsoil per acre per year on our agriculture land. We would never have accumulated any soil, Mark, if we were losing that. So if you think about that, a half an inch of water infiltrating in an hour means you're getting erosion at the rates that we're getting it. There would be no topsoil. So that's obviously not how nature works, right? Yeah. But two to three years, changing to regenerative grazing, for example, in two to three years, half an inch of water infiltrating in. 10 minutes? Under 10 seconds. Whoa. So when we talk about, you talk about macro scaling, you look at a region, you say, oh, we deal with these major floods, these major dust storms, these major issues, these major uh, runoff and sediment and pollution into our waterways. Regenerative farms can go and are going across the whole US, across all of the UK, are going to zero runoff. Zero. That's 27,000 gallons per acre if an inch of rain falls that you're absorbing and retaining in your soil. That is a working functioning soil sponge versus compacted degraded soil, which is not allowing for water to infiltrate. So when you look at just the water paradigm unto itself, and when you fix the broken soil, degraded dispersed state soil, and you turn it into a functioning aggregated healthy soil that is subsequently full of carbon. So it's also sequestered the carbon out of the atmosphere, but you've built the sponge back and your soil works again. Nature took eons to develop this system so that it's maximizing water usage. It's literally like the most epic technology that has ever existed, but it's, you know, these, uh, these soil aggregates called humus, th- th- these parts of them can hold 20 times their weight in water. These are nature's super sponges and we've just plow them up. We leave them degraded and we leave them bare and we don't take seriously the difference between a soil sponge and a soil plate, if you will. When you look at those numbers, they're absolutely colossal because area, area makes that very small amount of rainfall mean something. Exactly. So in terms of yield, in terms of far, you know, farmers, what, you know, the economics seem to stack up. Can we feed ourselves this way? Are we able to increase yield this way? 100%. So one of the big things that's under contempt right now is really the, the meat conversation and People being looking at numbers from cowspiracy, which is just completely insane because it's just one particular thing, you know, multiplied across the U.S. from like the North Dakotas and very dry area. Anyway, the point is, is that regeneration has to be the mindset for all of us. If we don't regenerate land and we continue to need more land, then we are always going to be degrading the earth and turning it into desert, right? Inevitably, the earth will lose all of its biomass and soil and will be dead. But if we look at regeneration, a farm in Alabama I was on in three years went from 50% bare ground, took a conventional soy and cornfield that was overgrown, 50% bare ground, in three years turned it to 90% covered ground and increased the biomass production by three and a half times. So in three years, 
5,000 acres on this side of the street, 5,000 acres on this side of the street, two different ranches. One has grass that's this tall and basically looks like the cows are starving all the time. Over here, you have three and a half times more biomass. The, the grass is up to my chest. The cows move into a paddock, twice different paddocks, twice a day. They eat the big buffet of grass and then they sit down and munch their cud for a while. So in terms of 5,000 acres against one another, in a video I made called A Regenerative Secret, you can see this and it's just mind-blowing. You're going to be able to say, oh, wow, the economic argument is for real here. This is increasing your holding capacity of your cows. So if that farm, I don't know if it's mentioned in the video, but that farm went from being able to hold one cow took 11 acres to feed down to one cow equals one to two acres to feed. That's tenfold nearly. Do you, yeah, you grasp that we're saying holding capacity is not a finite number. So people say, oh, you need this much space to feed all the cows in the world. If you increase your carrying capacity because you increase your biomass, your water absorption, all these other factors, you are literally increasing your abundance on a piece of land. That means that you can hold more animals and feed more people or create more vegetable production or whatever, whatever it is, more bird habitat. They filled like seven ponds on that property in three years, like insane results when you do it right. So regenerating land means that we're not having to stay in the confines of where we're at on the world right now. We can literally build back holding capacity of land. That's incredible, isn't it? We'll come to an end now because you've given me a lot of your time and I really appreciate that. But when we look at this, we've got this economic, this environmental and this food production capacity benefit. All of these things stack up. How do we get this to spread? How do we get farmers to get on board and how do we get consumers? I mean, we're running a conference in the UK. Many thanks for your support for that. How do we spread this message even further? Not everyone's going to watch the film. I'm guessing we're going to have to bite-size this a bit. Well, the good news is we don't need everybody to watch the film, and we don't need everyone to become soil advocates, and we don't need everyone to become regenerative farmers. With a small percentage of people taking this on, we can flip the script for humanity, because this is the only way economically for big businesses from the largest corporations right now in the world who are all connected to food or ag in any way are seeing that their bottom line is affected by the rate of degeneration of land. Like I think it was Nestle in 2015 said that they're losing something like 30 farmers a year. That's a really hard replacement number, Mark, to get people back. This means that everyone is going to feel the squeeze of degeneration, dehydration, and desertification. Everyone's going to feel the squeeze there. So back to my point, Kiss the Grounds programs, why we are so passionate about our programs, farmland program and our stewardship program is our farmland program is getting it so that people who are in farming can get access to the best training in the world so that they're economically viable in their transition and they get the help they need to be competitive and, and a you know, real regenerative farmer. So we work with the, the gentleman in the film, for example, the Soil Health Academy, Gabe and Ray. We work with their teams uh, to send farmers their way and get farmer training online or in-person trainings. And we work with several other farming groups as well. This is a way that we can have scholarship funding coming in so that partners can donate and say, here, or people, individuals, I want to help train farmers. And you're giving the, these farmers access to the best training that would have otherwise been either out of their budget or hard for them to access, giving them the community that surrounds them to make that successful. Number two is our second program is stewardship, which is where we house our soil advocate training program. And we just launched our evergreen version of that, which means it's available all the time 
for the past couple of years, we've been running this program and we've trained, uh, I think over 3000 people from over 30 different countries. And it's been remarkable to see these people who we call soil advocates taking on projects like you all are taking on across the world. What we need is people who get this, Mark, get the water story, get the carbon story, get the human health story, get the economic story, be able to make these arguments, not just with their friends, but with people who are in business, people who are in government, with farmers, whoever it is. There's so many different ways that advocates can participate and be really effective at local levels, state levels, coalition building, creating events or what have you. There's so many different ways that we provide. So that's a course that I feel like is extremely useful for people to get a head start. We don't need everyone to take as long as I did to get where I'm at with articulating these messages or getting you know nice looking slide decks or nice looking short videos to use before their presentation. We have a ton of resources in our course, Soil Advocate Training. You get all of that and it's yours and you get a community around you to really rally you and your projects and your efforts. Or you can, you know, we encourage people to join other existing groups. So if they come through Soil Advocate Training, get ready, and then they can get put in by you guys to actually go do big work. And they don't have to wait around for six years until they're ready to go. They can do this in an eight-module course, learn a heck of a lot, keep learning, of course. But that's really what I'm up for doing is saying this needs to be a million-plus advocates out there who are really strong and will have a turning ship, I believe it. That's amazing. That is amazing. You know, I always worked on 15% of a population taking something on and, and it becomes mainstream, um, but that's a lot less. 15% of people need to know about it and support it. Yeah. So those are the people who watch the film or watch a short movie or hear about regenerative agriculture, start, you know, consumer dollars supporting it, start, you know, signing petitions. But we need far, far less of the yous and me's and the people like out there who are saying, hey, I want to take this on as, as my life. And those advocate catalyst, we don't need that many of those people because this momentum of this movement is where the world needs to go. This is not a uh, one side of the aisle conversation. This is not one side of the economic conversation. This is where the world needs to go. And we have bipartisan support and it's an opportunity that's time has come. Amazing. Look, Finian, all I can do is thank you. The time that you spend with me is a, is a real gift and the work that you do matters. You know this. It matters more than probably anything else you've done. I'm just going to finish with one light-hearted question. Drums or guitar? Which is your weapon of choice? Uh, it really depends. Regenerative agriculture says context, context, context. The so same thing. But if I have to share a message, of course, and sing to a group at a campfire at a festival that we've all partaken in some mind-altering things, I would say guitar. But if I tell you what, if I'm playing a show, nighttime, big stage, 1,000 people plus audience, Playing the drums, Mark, when you're in rock and roll and you're playing all the way and you're sweating, there's nothing in the world that I've ever felt more like I'm channeling through my whole body because your whole body's working. It's just like you just become taken over and you have these moments of like zero awareness of yourself. It's just, you're just in it. It's, it's, ugh, it's so good. So I would say on the bigger stage, of course, the drums. That's amazing. That absorption, I can see. It's really interesting because this is audio, but I can see you and I can see the love and the passion in you when you are waving your arms in the air. That was beautiful. If people want to find out more, they go to the website, which is? Kisstheground.com. And they can join up for advocate training. They can find out where to watch the movie. They can do all of that. Yeah. 
and they can find their path. There's this tool we have called Find Your Path, which not everyone's up for being an advocate, not everyone's a farmer, but Find Your Path allows anyone from anywhere in the world under a minute to find things that are catered to your interest. So you can start where you're at right now. So that's called our Find Your Path tool at kissetheground.com. And of course, we want people to become members of Kiss the Ground. And right now we have an impact campaign that's all about the film getting out there to the world. We have an education cut that just came out, 45 minutes, and a farmer cut that just came out. So people can come and support those getting out to the world. And you can also support directly farmers getting this education. So check out our uh, homepage, our impact fund, become a member, give the gift of the soil advocate training to someone for Christmas or if you celebrate that. Yeah. That's amazing. What, what, I mean, for any celebration, I really don't mind what people celebrate. Yeah. Don't give a goat in Africa. Give this or give both. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you so much. You know, there's something really reassuring about the world having woken up to this challenge. And there's something equally reassuring about people like Finian being in the lead and genuinely changing the nature of the conversation around agriculture and around what we eat. It's one of those conversations that I really enjoyed and could have got on for another hour, but you haven't got an hour to listen to it, so we tried to keep it short. I heartily recommend that you dive into kissthegrand.com and you look at the resources that are there. And I heartily recommend that you have these conversations with producers as you go through life and as you buy things, go to farmers markets, get to know the people that grew the stuff that you're buying because then you'll get to hear the stories and then you'll get to ask questions about the way the soil is treated. And there's a knock-on impact in terms of bigger sustainability, in terms of health, and in terms of things like soil and the ability of our planet to handle the water that sits on it. 